Welcome to our Twitter Spaces uh, this Friday. My name is Eric Mokaya. I'm the founder of Mwango. You can see around uh, 70 plus people have joined so far, which is good. I can see a couple of requests also to the mic, but uh, we'll reserve that to the second part of the spaces today. Uh, so the first part of the spaces, which is going to be around 30 to 40 minutes, I would spend asking direct questions to Edwin. And then some of the questions have come in beforehand. We prepare well for this. And then in the second half, we're going to allow a couple of questions from the public. We hope to allow a couple of people to ask questions. So we prefer non-anonymous accounts. So if you have a name and a handle on that, then we would be allowing you to ask a couple of questions. The second part is going to be a, quite a civil discussion. So we want to set the pace from the very beginning. It's going to be an honest and uh, really engaging discussion. So we prefer to face the fact in the process. So I really hope that you're going to have like a really fruitful and uh, wonderful discussion around Cyton. So without further ado, I want to welcome the our CEO and the founder of uh, Cyton. You can say hi and tell us uh, how the day has been. Thanks, Eric, and thanks for inviting me to Mwango Spaces. The day has been great. Looking forward to what you call a candid and fruitful conversation. So back over to you. All right. So thank you so much. So we start from the slow end, uh, which is more the personal aspect of it. So maybe you can give us a thumbnail sketch of your, the major stops of your career so far. I understand you are a claimant, so I've read a little bit about it. So maybe you can give us a, a bit of a hint on how that has shaped your career to where you are to date now. Okay. So career-wise, I have to say I always wanted to be a lawyer. I can still remember where I was standing when, I think it was 91, 92, when Kenya became a multi-party state. And lawyers like Paul Mwita made an impression on me, and I was like, that's what I want to do. However, life happened. After high school, I went to Strathmore, took accounting. Then my friends started going to the U.S. I went to the U.S. When I got to the U.S., I realized that based on my one year at Strathmore would be able to save myself a year of, of school if I took accounting. So I decided, let me try this accounting thing. Spent three years in accounting, joined KPMG in New Jersey, did audit for two years. Uh, when I was doing audit, I had a side hustle doing taxes. I did taxes for Kenyans in New Jersey. I thought I was doing well as an accountant working for KPMG. Until I did taxes for a guy called John Gashora, the current MD of NIC. And he was an investment banker then. And I realized this guy was making almost 10 times what I was making. I was not in love with accounting at that point. I asked him, what is this that you do? He said investment banking. I told him that's exactly what I want to do because I was more focused on the financial part of it. And he told me, okay, if you want to do investment banking, you have to go to one of these schools. That's where we recruit from, and I applied to those schools and ended up getting into Wharton. From Wharton, then I got into Lehman Brothers, did investment banking. My boss went to Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. I followed him there. The global financial crisis hit. I was laid off, then decided to come back and see what I can do in Kenya. I'd, I'd always wanted to come back home, then came back, met this group called Baraka, Africa Fund. Joined them. There was a gentleman there called Benson Wairegi as one of the investors. We got to develop a rapport and he invited me to get to Britam Asset Managers as Chief Investment Officer. I told him, okay, uh, where I am right now, either I'm running a shop. If not, then I'll just go back to uh, New York. And he told me, okay, if you wanted to see your job, there's a guy called Dominic Chiaria who's leaving Britam Asset Managers to be CEO of, I think, UAP. So if you're a patient, you'll get that job. So that's how I ended up being CEO of Term Asset Managers. After 
three years we couldn't see eye to eye we parted ways and uh, formed Cyton and here I am so that's in brief my career history so the movie foundation of you starting Cyton is I think they called it the fame payments work out from Britain so maybe you can give us a little bit of context on that for those who are not familiar on that because I think it's also been uh, part of the question that you've been asked in the past uh, so maybe you can give us a little bit of context on how that went and how your relationship with the Britain is currently so first, let me say Britam is a great brand, I'm a great supporter. I spent a lot of time there, it created for me a platform in this country. However, the issue is very simple. We had a difference of opinion in terms of compensation. If you are in uh, private equity, asset management, investment banking, share of profits is very important. We had a deal where if we did real estate development, Econ would get, I think, 25% of the profits. The management team will get 37.5% of the profit, and then uh, the group would keep 37.5% of the profits. When now it came a time to actually honor that deal, I think there was shakiness around the commitment to that deal. Then the management uh, team at Britam Asset Manager said, okay, we understand this real estate strategy. We came here when you were doing equities, fixed income, government bonds, essentially what you call plain vanilla assets. So at that point, we said, fine, if you don't want to honor this deal, we are going to uh, band together as a management team. At that point, myself as CEO, Elizabeth, CIO, Patricia, head of legal, Steve was an investment analyst, and then other people followed us. I would say probably eight people out of Britain. We banded together and formed Cyton uh, just because we wanted to enjoy the fruits of our sweat. And that's how Cyton came to be. Right. You can tell us a little bit about the experience of the financial crisis and that, uh, how that has shaped you. From reading business history, a lot of people's business trajectory has shaped, especially by crisis. So that financial crisis, what did it teach you? That's a good question, Eric. I think the first lesson is from a personal level. Leaving accounting and joining investment banking, the pay really accelerates almost 10 times. And if you're already an accountant at KPMG, you're already well paid. Now imagine your pay accelerating by 10 times, it's pretty hefty. So at that point, of course, we bumped up our lifestyle. When I say we, it's myself and my wife. We got a really great house in Princeton, New Jersey, got a mortgage, and things were working. I got laid off, and all of a sudden, I couldn't pay my uh, mortgage. And all of a sudden, it was a personal financial crisis. From that particular personal financial crisis, I learned to be very, very simple. I don't think I've ever taken a mortgage or a loan for personal use since then, having gone through that experience. Of course, we found a way uh, to save our house and rent it out. But I think the biggest lesson out of the financial crisis is that you can move from financial stability to financial crisis in one day. I remember when I joined Britam, my then boss Wairegi once told me, okay, why do you stay in an apartment in Kilimani, take a loan and uh, get a house where people, CEOs like yourself are supposed to be staying? I assume it's Runda, Karen, those kinds of places. And from my lesson at Bank of America after the financial crisis, I said, no, I will not do that. So I think the biggest lesson out of the financial crisis that I can share with anyone is to keep your life extremely simple, be able to maintain a lifestyle that you can maintain without your job. Now, I know that is oversimplifying it, especially in this part of the world where a good majority are living from hand to mouth. But the key message is 
try not to upgrade your life as your income upgrades. Try very much so that your lifestyle really lags your income so that if the income disappears, you don't have to make a radical change. So that's on the personal side. On the business side, it's really things can change. And that's why even what we are going through as Cyton, yes, it's heart-wrenching. It really affects people's personal lives. But it's just to know that businesses are ups and downs and it's what you do about them that really matters. It's how you react to the challenges that matters. It's not the challenges. You cannot control the challenges, but you can control how you react to the challenges. So those are the two, two lessons that I would say I took out of the financial crisis. So perhaps you now as a journey into Saiton, uh, maybe you can tell us what does your job entail as a CEO and what uh, inspires or motivates you to work hard to make Saiton a success? I, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, day-to-day -day job for any CEO is, I would hate to put it this way, but you're a glorified administrator. I mean, the biggest job for any CEO or anybody running a business is, is administration. And if you take a step but Eric, and maybe I'll answer it by asking you a question or anybody, what is the highest degree in the world? Are the socks? It's actually the MBA. If you take any degree in the world, the highest paying degree in the world, if you just look at who makes what is an MBA and an MBA is just a master's in business administration. A business administration is just really keeping things going every single day, hiring, separation, contract disciplinary committee, those kinds of mundane things, contract, keeping the doors open, talking to your financiers, resolving disputes among employees. So that is really the day-to-day -day thing, the thing I'm doing here, talking to Mango Capital. So it's not brain science, so to speak. You are not doing models. You are doing mainly keeping the train moving. That's the day-to-day of pretty much any CEO, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a law firm, whether it is an investment company, I'm sure yourself as Mongo Capital, the things you do day to day, it is really just keeping uh, the thing going. So that is the typical day of a CEO anywhere in any particular company. I think that was the first uh, part of the equation. What was the second part? We'll just branch into maybe understanding Saiton a bit better. Uh, I think that's a good segue now into the next part, which is more as a CEO and since you deeply understand the business and the company, you can tell us a little bit about maybe the formation of Saiton itself at the beginnings and then in the process also tell us what does Saiton actually do as a business. Okay. The formation of Saiton, we saw an opportunity. If you look at the cost of credit, if you go borrow today, and it's something that's observable, meaning you can verify it for yourself. I think the website is cost of credit at uh, co.ke, and you can pick any bank and put the tenure of the credit. But the average cost of credit in Kenya is around 18.5%. That is what people are paying, all in cost of uh, borrowing. If you go see what people are getting as a return on their deposit, it's probably around 3 to 4%. So we look at it and say, this is a huge spread, 18 versus 14. There's got to be a way to make money. Now, the asset class that we thought is consistent is real estate. So we asked ourselves, what if we just went and borrowed directly from these individuals? If they have money today, they'll take it to a bank. They'll get almost 4% at best on average. The bank will take that money and lend it to a developer at an all-in cost of 
what if we went to the individual and say, instead of you lending your money to the bank at 4%, the bank turns around and lends it to me at 18%. I'll just give you the 16 to 18% that I would pay to the bank. And we found that there was quite a bit of receptivity to that. So looking at the hunger for yield in the market, and knowing that if we took this money, we could probably make 20 to 21% in real estate. That was the, what I would call the theoretical foundation of Cyton. Go and offer an individual the same cost of capital that you would pay to a bank. And that's how we raised money. And once we raised that money, the only asset that we felt could give us a consistent return was real estate. And even real estate not all kinds of real estate. If you look at where we invest, we invest in probably four to five areas. The first area is uh, gated communities in Karen. Why Karen has the highest concentration of high-end schools anywhere in Kenya. So in both good or bad markets, there are those who can afford to send their kids to Banda School, Brookhouse, uh, West Nairobi School. So that's why we like Karen. And in Karen, we have around three developments. There's a Mara Ridge, there's Applewood, and there's C2. The second thing we liked was what I would call compelling demographics. If you look at the top 10 fastest growing towns in Kenya with a population 50,000 and above, 6 out of 10, according to the latest uh, census uh, data that we could access, 6 out of 10 are in Kiambu County. So that's the second thing we like, compelling demographics. In Kiambu County, we have Taraji, Alma, the Ridge, and Riveran. So that's the second theme that we like. The, the third theme is service apartments. It has the highest yield of any real estate theme. And not only does it have the highest yield, the best market for service apartment is Westland. So that's what informs our service apartment investment called Saisuits in Westlands. The... Fourth theme is mixed-use developments. While single-use, whether commercial, residential, service apartment, gated communities could be good, mixed-use development developments do better in both good and bad markets. That's why a place like Yaya Center, which has a commercial, it has retail, it has offices, it has service apartments, will always do well. So that's what informed the purchase of the four acres in Kilimani. The intention was to put a larger version of uh, Yaya Center. So that is one of the four themes that we invest in. Gated communities, such as Amarari in Karen, mixed-use developments, that's what we wanted to do with Saiton Towers in Kilimani, and serviced apartments, and then compelling de demographics, that's why we are heavily invested in Kiambu County. So that's what informed Saiton. Borrow from individuals, pay them the same rate you would pay at a bank, take that money and put it in one of those uh, four themes. Now, of course, when markets are strong, it works. When markets are difficult, it, it doesn't work because then it is short term and you have to be able to roll it forward. If after the maturity, after one year, individuals are willing to roll it forward, the strategy continues. When a point comes when they don't want to roll it forward, whether it is for economic environment reasons, you know, things like COVID or reputational reasons. We've had a lot of issues in the market. The first, I would think, probably four or five years, we were fighting allegations from our former employer, Britam, 
those have now been pretty much handled. You don't hear too much about it. Unfortunately, once we finished fighting the reputational issues with Britain, then we had to get into another set of reputational issues with CMA around litigation issues. So not only are we fighting the economic environment, we're also fighting reputational issues. I don't know if that answers your question about our business model and the challenges. That's okay. I have a couple of questions maybe. So I would start by asking like real estate products and long-term investment products. I mean, they take a while to mature, to develop, to realize returns from that. And then uh, you're taking money from individual investors. So in that case, then the exposure to uh, liquidity mismatch is pretty high. And then if you combine that with the knowledge of the 2008 financial crisis, which was one, one of the causes was the similar mismatch in terms of uh, real estate projects, which are, uh, I mean, structured products, which have money, and then they're being invested in long-term projects then. So were you aware of this and what kind of actions did you take from the very beginning to actually mitigate this, uh, especially given that uh, a crisis is bound to happen at some point? So let me break it into two. One is what you said about the financial crisis and uh, allow me to gently correct you there. The global financial crisis was not about asset liability mismatch. The global financial crisis was fundamentally about what I would call loose credit if I'm being polite, but if I'm being very candid, then it's fraud. Essentially what happened is as mortgage brokers had people who could not afford mortgage forge applications and got houses because the price of houses were rising. It didn't matter. You could claim you had an income that you did not have. A mortgage broker would help you fake your application. You'd buy the house. There was no deposit. You didn't have to put a deposit. So you buy the house for a hundred bob, so to speak. It goes to 105, you sell it, you make five bob, and you sell it to the next person. What then happened is the prices cannot go up forever. So a point comes where the price cannot go up, you have zero equity in that house. If then the price starts to go down, you just default or you stop paying. That is really what brought about the global financial crisis. It was really fake mortgages. Coming back to what you're talking about, asset liability mismatch, it was an entrepreneurial bet, and it was done in broad daylight. Give me your money, any tenure between three months all the way to one year. Our calculation is that 80% of these people in a normal environment are going to roll forward their money. And that did work for almost a good six years. Even when there were shocks, there were times that Britain cases would flare up and we would have massive withdrawals. But we were able to talk to the client base and say, give me another three months, roll it forward. What brought about actually stopping withdrawals is when in, I think it's January 2020, that was the first time we entered litigation with CMA. And when you enter litigation with a regulator, it doesn't matter whether you are right or wrong, people flee. Right after that, then COVID hit. So you're dealing with two compound issues. You have a real economic issue where people want to withdraw, don't want to invest, such as COVID. And before that, you're dealing with a reputational issue. So the asset liability mismatch, I don't know how I can put it, it is a commercial choice that a lot of entities make. It's just a question of how much of it you're going to, if you got borrow a loan from KCB today, there are no deposits that are 25 years or 15 years. The deposits are short term, then they allocate a certain amount of the deposits to long-term mortgages. So it is something that financial institutions do, 
it is just that for us, we took the decision and said, we will. As long as 80% of our money can roll forward, we are going to take this entrepreneurial bet. And once we've built a brand, we will then issue long-term notes, medium-term notes, essentially to take out the short-term liability. We will issue a regulated funds. That's why you, you saw us register site on asset managers to be able to have regulated funds which are more stable. However, the transition from short-term borrowing to longer-term borrowing, that transition did not happen as was planned. That's how we ended up then saying we have to invoke the force majeure clauses. When that force majeure one-year period expired, then we moved ourselves. We didn't wait for the lenders to move us to administration. We moved ourselves to administration. So with the benefit of hindsight, was it aggressive? Certainly. We were running 10 projects at a go at one particular time based on short-term funding. With the goal to transition it to medium to long-term funding, that transition did not happen as we had planned. All right, let's start with the product roadmap or maybe a, a bit of a sketch on the different products that you offer. And then you can jump into uh, addressing the difference between the regulated and the unregulated products that you have. Okay. So we offer two sets of products. We have investments and we have real estate and we have hospitality. Let me start with the easiest product, which is hospitality. Hospitality, we do service apartments because it is the highest yielding uh, theme of any real estate theme. And it's very straightforward. You go to Westlands in size suits and you can check into a serviced uh, apartment. So that's one of our products. The second product is the actual brick and mortar real estate, where the flagship product is the Alma in Ruaka. You can buy a one, two or three bedroom apartment. And we don't sell shelter, a place where you can just go and sleep. We sell comprehensive lifestyle. So when you go to the Alma, yes, you will get your apartment. But from your apartment, you should be able to do shopping within the commercial center that is part of the development. There's a gym, there's an aerobic studio there. Yeah, it's a swimming pool, restaurant, common area spaces, rooftop gardens. So we try and make sure that whatever we offer in that comprehensive lifestyle development stands out. That is why if you go to Ruaka today, you can get a one bedroom rented in the area for maybe even 12,000, 15,000 shillings a month. But if you come to a one bedroom, it's 30,000. So how come we're able to rent out at two to three times the neighborhood? It's because of the kind of development that we are putting out there. So that's the second type of product, which is comprehensive lifestyle real estate sales. Remember the first one I said is hospitality. The second one is uh, real estate. The third one, which I think is what you're alluding to is investments, where we take money from people and promise them a return. That business is divided into two, the regulated. Now, why regulated? The law says, if you are going to deal with a member of the public, then there's a public interest. And if there's a public interest, then the regulator, CMA, takes an interest in what you are doing. Our flagship product in the regulated space is a site on money market fund, very automated. You can just uh, join to invest or withdraw. If you're in Kenya, just uh, dialing star 8 or 9 hash. I'll just repeat that, star 8 or 9 hash. So that's on the regulated space. On the unregulated space, essentially what the law says is that if you are going to invest 100,000 shillings and above, and at least that's the way we understand it in terms of the private offers regulation, then it's none of the regulator's business. You are no longer the public. Uh, the, the law essentially deems you to be 
wealthy enough or knowledgeable enough, you can hire a lawyer or an accountant. If you're going to invest 100,000 shillings and above, then it can qualify under the private offers market. That means I'm sitting with you one-on-one -on -one and selling you an idea. And that's where our real estate funds, remember I talked about one of our businesses selling the brick and mortar, but we don't finance it primarily by going to banks. We've only borrowed from two banks. SBM has financed part of the Alma and KCB has financed part of the uh, size uh, development. But the vast majority of our financing of the entire almost 14 to 15 billion, only 1 billion has been financed by banks. The other 13 to 14 billion has been financed by individual investors. Those are the three businesses we are in, hospitality, real estate, and investment management. Investment management is divided into the regulated and the unregulated. Maybe we can drill down a bit on the investment side. That's where there's been a bit of an issue. Uh, so perhaps you can tell us a bit about the different types of funds under this that you have, and then maybe the assets and the management in each of these funds. I would say the two main funds is one called Site on High Yield Solutions, not to be, con not to be confused with the regulated Site on High Yield Funds. The CHYS is the unregulated, CHYF is the regulated. So on, on the unregulated side, we have CHYS and we have uh, Site on Project Notes. The difference between the two is that CHYS is one-year fund at max. You, you roll forward every one year. Site on project notes was like a medium term note, three to five years. But from a strategy perspective, you could consider them really just the same fund, CHYS, CPN, private funds that are funding real estate development. Okay. So the, the question is though, why were these two products named in such a close manner? Like the difference is just a single word. Doesn't that confuse the investors, especially if you're going to individual investors? I would say it is rather confusing. However, the most important part, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, that you said is why. We had this product called CHYS, which is a private offered product. Our understanding of the law and based on legal opinions that we have, and we remember we've also subjected this thing to, to legal interpretation, it's before a judge as we speak, is as long as the investor has put in at least 100,000, you meet the criteria for being a private offer. And I will even go further and say, not even our understanding of the law, we also have a written confirmation from the current CEO of CMA that yes, if it's at least 100,000, then it is a private offer. However, at some point, CMA came and said, the number of investors in this fund of yours is now too many. We reached a pragmatic solution and said, okay, we retain our view that this is a private offer and therefore none of your business. However, because you are the regulator and we are being pragmatic, we will subject it to regulation. Now, if you look at all regulated funds, Unitrust funds, it is Cyton Money Market Fund, Britain Money Market Fund, Cyton Equity Fund. The point being, the last word is an F. So we reached something called a transition roadmap to move CHYS from a private entity to a regulated entity. So we are going to move CHYS to become CHYF. That is why you ended up with those two names. So CHYF was being incubated as the regulated fund, according to what the regulator wanted. 
and CHYS was then to wind down over time. And CHYS would then cease to offer any new issuance in the market and CHYF would be the running entity. When that was conceived, it was in good faith between ourselves and the regulator. I don't think anybody sat down and asked what happens if then this transition falls apart as it eventually did. When it eventually did, remember CHYF is a fund uh, approved by CMA and is up and running. CHYF is a private fund. And even when the regulator tried to shut it down, we went to court and got orders against those directives. How it, you ended up with two names. It was not what you hear people say in the market, like some sort of preconceived notion to confuse investors. By the time we were creating CHYF together with CMA, CHYS had been running for a long period of time. This was an attempt to transition CHYS from a private offer to a public offer. That transition never happened for whatever reasons. That's why you ended up with two products in the market. Having said that, Eric, there is not a single, unless you can tell me, there is not a single CHYS investor who has said, I didn't know that I was in a private offer. Not a single one. So this issue of confusion is a creation of what I would call spectators, people who are not in the arena. They have no investment. They don't hold any contract. I would challenge you or anyone to tell me, here is one single investor who says I'm confused. There is none. Every investor knew that this was a private offer. We sold it as a private offer. Before you invest, there's a series of compliance steps that we take. You have to get an email. And the subject matter of that email says this is a private offer. If you then choose to proceed, you have to sign a contract that makes it clear that this is a private offer. So I would just put it the way I'm thinking about it. It, it makes for good bar talk and it's sexy to talk about, oh, these products are confusing. But who is confused? I don't even know of a single person who is in the product that is confused. They know what they signed up for. Okay. So the question I wanted to ask, having seen how the product have uh, panned out in the process of like issuance and maybe the challenges to regulators and perhaps, uh, as you say, there are no disgruntled investors, but there are a couple of news items that uh, relate to that that say that there are some disgruntled investors. So the question I would ask is what would you do differently about the various products if you're given a chance then to do them again? Eric, let me correct. I've not said there are no disgruntled investors. There are a lot of disgruntled investors. What I'm saying is that there are no confused investors. The perception that CHYS investors were confused and thinking they were investing in a regulated product is a creation of what I would call uh, media and social media discussion. So uh, let me just correct again. I'm not saying there are no disgruntled investors. There are a lot of disgruntled investors, but there are no confused investors as, as far as I know. So the question to reiterate was, what would you do differently about the structure of these products if you were to do this all over again, knowing the risks now and at least having seen the result of these kind of products under stress. And perhaps maybe that also relates to another question that I've seen. What I've seen globally, the standard is when you issue structured uh, finance products, uh, at least there's central banks and uh, they challenge the institutions to run at least stress tests on some of the products. Uh, did you do this at least for some of the products as issues, like say CHYS and CHYF? Okay, so a couple of questions there. What would we do differently? Number one, of course, our real estate strategy was too aggressive. That is our own mistake. I wouldn't say that's our own mistake. The buck stops with me. That is my mistake. We should not have taken that many number of projects at once. Now, at that point, the inflows were pretty strong. So we had two choices, either, either to dial down the yield 
to stem the inflow of money. But at that point, we said, you know what, let's get all our sites all at once. Let's purchase all the, the real estate that we needed. And it was an error with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, remember, one of our largest investors then was a sophisticated global financial uh, institution called Tallery. We ran all these things by the board, but ultimately, given that I'm the largest shareholder, I was the, the driver of this strategy, the buck stops with me. And looking back, I would not be that aggressive, but hindsight is 2020. So that was the first mistake. We had a very aggressive real estate strategy. Nobody I know runs around eight projects at once in this market. So we were very ambitious. Then the second thing was the rollover rate. We used 80% as our rollover rate. At any point in maturity, 80% of these guys will roll over. When something like COVID hit, the rollover rate drops to almost 10%. So you already immediately have an illiquidity of almost 70% uh, of the portfolio. Experienced before, when we had negative news, there was a time it was in, in the front pages of Standard, Cyton directors getting arrested by DCI because of Britam issues. The rollover rate dropped from 80 to around 50%. Then it bounces back. You can manage through that. But when it drops to almost 10%, you can't manage through that. So looking back, we should have envisioned a rollover rate that is way below 80%. But looking back, there's no way we would have thought that it could drop to 10% as it did right after right up March 20th during the COVID crisis. So definitely we should have worked with a much stricter sensitivity scenario. I think those are the two main things, a less aggressive real estate strategy and, and a longer term funding and assuming lower rollover rates. If we solve for those two things, we would not be where we are, but we are where we are and we are managing through that risk. Perfect. You're almost at the 40-minute mark of the spaces, so it's time also to let the listeners know how to ask your questions. You can DM the questions, and below a pinned tweet, you can just write your question and you'll be able to read. There are a couple which have come in, so we'll read them out. The third thing you can do is to send a request to speak. We really insist on not having troll accounts, so we prefer if you have a name and a face to your account. Those are the three ways. So as a final question, as I wait for questions uh, to come in from the public, I would ask, well, what's the state of CHLYS and uh, CPN currently, which are placed under administration? And what does that mean practically for someone who invested in both schemes? So Eric, the, the funds are, are under administration and I personally filed in court for the funds to go under administration and I'll explain why. Once we experienced illiquidity in March of 2020, we invoked the force majeure clause and essentially said you cannot withdraw for three months. And really, we were just trying to understand what is going on. After three months, come June 2020, we concluded that this illiquidity will not bounce back anytime soon. So then we went for the full force majeure and barred withdrawals for a whole year up to June 2021. What then happened? Right after that is that a couple of investors then decided to file for liquidation petitions. Uh, quite frankly, a way to kind of squeeze you to pay them. It's essentially, you are either paying me or I'll liquidate you. The second thing that happened <clears throat> is that, and this is my interpretation, I think CMA management panicked based on the public outcry. 
and also took the view that, look, this CHYS is illegal, is an illegal activity. So within that one year, people filing liquidation petitions, CMA filing criminal complaints, going on to, I've never even seen a regulator go to social media and to mainstream media to complain about a licensee, but that's what happened. We then concluded that these two funds cannot bounce back. And those who then went for liquidation petitions and judgments on debt, there were those who are now getting very close to getting judgment on debt. Essentially, they can attach any asset and auction for themselves. Now, these assets belong to 4,000 investors. <clears throat> so we made a judgment that we would rather file for administration to protect these assets for the benefit of 4,000 investors rather than risk uh, a few investors, 30, 40 investors who are in court, getting judgment on debt, getting decrees on those judgments in high court and auctioning the asset for themselves. So that's why we preemptively went to court and said, we have an illiquidity issue. We have an insolvency issue. Please put these funds under administration. And once they go under administration, then all the collection efforts that were ongoing with those 30, 40 investors who wanted to put themselves ahead of others, then stopped because you get a moratorium on debt. So that is where we are. Once the administrator comes on board, then we work with the administrator, they are an independent body, and they try to find out what is the best way to monetize this asset for the benefit of the 4,000 investors. So that is where we are today on the private offers. Remember on the regulated side, our flagship product site on money market fund continues to operate normally. And I would even say not even normally, it is the fund that has the fastest withdrawal of any uh, money market in this market, either through the portal, through the site on app, or through star eight or nine hash, you can invest or withdraw instantly anytime 24 seven. So that's where we are today. The regulated funds continue to operate normally. Remember the real estate vehicles continue to operate normally. Those are not under administration. What is under administration are the funding liability vehicles, which is CHYS and CPN. How much is the at stake in these two funds for the investors then? Uh, in, from your assessment, at least from the last valuation, what's the asset size that is in these funds and what's the ability that is um, at stake here? I would say probably 14 billion, but around 4 billion has already been resolved through investors who've chosen to take an asset. Remember, the investment agreement is guided by a mother document, which is called a partnership deed. That partnership deed foresaw situations where an investor might say, okay, I invested with you. You've put the money in real estate. I don't want to wait for you to finish. Can you just give me my share? So I would say probably three to four billion of these investors have come around and said, for me, I don't want to wait for your administration or monetization or restructuring strategies. Let me just work through how to get a piece of land through a plot or how to get an apartment or a unit for my money. Now, of course, when something like this happens, and it's human nature, we tend to focus on the negative. But the positive is, unlike other entities like Nakumat, where lenders, especially the, the commercial paper lenders, walked away with zero, here is a brand that is telling you, your money is in these assets. The worst that will happen is that we have to work away for you to get your hands on these assets. So the assets remain very safe. They are observable, but they are illiquid. All right, a couple of questions are coming in. The first question is from uh, Ivan uh, from the DMs. He's asking if the liabilities are in administration. 
but the assets are not. How is that working out? Explain exactly what that means to the individual investor who invested in that project. I mean, in terms of the assets and the liabilities, you said some wine, uh, a part of it is the administration, the assets are out there, but then like, how does that work for practically for the investor who invested in the project? Let, let's talk about CHYS, for example. The liability for CHYS is the funds owed to the 3,300 investors in CHYS. The asset for that vehicle are the loan note instruments into the various projects. So if you are running a strategies as we were running, where you are funding from individual investors into different vehicles, it would be very, and for lack of a better word, Eric, it would be very silly to put everything in one legal entity because if one real estate project runs into trouble, and there's no strategy that can't run into trouble, anything worth doing, whether it is business, whether it's a relationship, whether it is a career, will always run into trouble. So you have to structure around the probable troubles, what exactly is likely to happen. So we put every single activity into its own individual legal entity. If it's ALMA, it is in its own individual entity. If it's, for example, the REIG, it is in a legal entity called the REIG. If it's funding, it's in a legal entity called CHYS. So that one trouble in a vehicle does not infect all the other vehicles instantly. That is why you will go to a place like SciSuits and it's operating normally. You would not know that it has the brand challenges that, let's say, CHYS has. It's in the interest of a CHYS investor that the underlying asset stays alive, even as we sort through the liquidity issues. It would be worse if the underlying asset itself also crumbles. So that was a strategy to make sure that the underlying asset at least continues to breathe, even though we are still dealing with the illiquidity issues in the funding vehicles. So it is CHYS and CPN that are under administration. The individual real estate investments are not under administration. Is it possible then to carve them out so that they may be under a special purpose vehicle? But each of them is already under a special purpose vehicle. All right. And maybe a quick question I would ask is, uh, what's the bone of contention between you and the CMA and where are you at in the process of that contention that you have with the regulator? It's a very, it's a simple question, but the answer is complex and I wish uh, CMA can speak for itself. I think there are a couple of things. Number one, what is a private offer? And is it even legal? CMA takes the view that any offer that they deem public is therefore public and if it's not registered, then it's illegal. That's not our view and that's why we've submitted it for judicial interpretation. There's an article I did in LinkedIn, which I was surprised by the extent of viewership. I think it got 150,000 people. And the point I was trying to make is if Java, Kukito, uh, Good Life Pharmacy can come and establish uh, Shell, can it come and establish these businesses here and they are funded privately, why would CMA stop a Kenyan from also funding privately? It seems like we are ceding the private equity and private debt space foreign players and trying to put down that same market for Kenyans. It doesn't seem to make sense. Why do you have to be a foreigner to be allowed to play in the private space? And if you register a company in Kenya and you're a Kenyan, then you are not allowed to play in the private space. So that's the first area of philosophical difference. A private offer is allowed according to the CMA Act. I think it's section 30A, 30B as read together with the I think public offers regulation. 
So what we did is we said, okay, I would hope that at least a regulator would respect the rule of law. So if then we see it differently, let's subject ourselves under the rule of law for judicial interpretation. That issue is still making its way in the court. So that's one thing that we have a difference of opinion. When there is trouble, people run away. You've seen members of the board leaving. You've seen employees leaving. So at some point, CMS wrote to us a directive and said, this site or name is so tainted, so we want you to change all regulated products and give them a new name. Now, why would anybody do that? It doesn't make sense. We believe in the brand. So we also went to court to challenge their powers to tell us to rename our regulated entities because no one is confused. It's just that when things get thick, people try to run away from trouble situations, whether it's in business or whether it's individual situation. So that's another issue that, that we are in court over. There's also the issue of NCPN and illegality. When things got thick, they said it was. We say that, no, it is not an illegality. It is exactly what we agreed between ourselves as the fund man, as the investment manager and CMA as the regulator. This is the structure that uh, we had agreed. So I think it's really philosophical differences about capital markets issues. That's our issue with CMA as a brand. Now, as Edwin, I also have certain issues. I mean, how can you have a market where businesses rely on uh, banks for 99% of their funding? You go to more developed markets, businesses rely on banks for only 40% and 60% comes from capital markets. So why is it that our capital markets can only fund 1% of businesses? There's something that's wrong. And I'm raising that issue as a... Any regular Kenyan, there are people who are passionate about politics. There are people who are passionate about football and passionate about capital markets. And I think there's a problem with our regulatory framework. When you raise that issue, some people in CMA might not like it. So the differences are both business and personal. All right. Perhaps one question uh, I wanted to ask was about the institutional investors. Perhaps you you kind of avoided going to banks, but then like there's also long-term institutional capital in terms of maybe PE funds or... Uh, such like, so maybe pensions. I know a lot of pension funds within the African uh, uh, continent and even in Kenya, they choose to invest in government bonds and all. But have you tried perhaps to maybe get long-term institutional capital? And perhaps I think there is a mention of a company of an institution like Talieri uh, in terms of getting them to provide to you that long-term capital that allows you to maybe match their assets and liability well enough going forward. Eric, we've tried with uh, limited success. Our largest investor is an institutional investor. You asked how much we manage from these high net worth investors. It's roughly, I would say, 14 to 15, but the total we manage is 20. The 5 billion comes from Talleri, which is a Finnish company. So we have had success with Talleri. The second institution that has invested with us is SBM, has put 650 in, uh, in uh, the Alma. But local institutions, quite frankly, seem to be happy with equities, fixed income, government bonds. And that is why there isn't so much capital in the capital markets. Uh, most of the capital comes from banks. So we continue to have that discussion, but the pension funds in this market are still very much focused on bank deposits, government debt. And listed, and listed shares, and also with all the issues that we have as a brand, and we are, we, are, we are addressing them one at a time. Institutions also don't quite like, at least local institutions don't quite like brands that have challenges. We don't have 
rescue capital in this kind of market. If you look at other developed markets, when a brand is in trouble, there's a lot of rescue capital that comes at a price, of course, they'll ding you on the valuation, but we are just not there as a market. And that's why we are called a third world. We are emerging, we are developing. So that's why some of us see ourselves as having the responsibility to develop markets so that there's some institutions who can come in and play when a brand is challenged. So our question is, given the current realities at site of maybe brand damage and say liquidity and public skepticism and some stalled projects, with these realities, what informs the view that you think Titan will survive and why? Thanks for that question. Remember, we went into Force Major June 2020, then we went into administration October 2021. We are seated now here in January 2022. At least the track record shows that we are working through our issues. For me, there's one indicator I look at, the inflow outflow in regulated products. And the data we see so far is that the market has been able to differentiate and saying, I understand the challenge on the real estate fund, but I understand that on the un unregulated funds, there is no issue. So the inflows there still continue to overwhelm the outflows. And if you're in finance, that is one of the most important metrics. Are you getting net inflows? And yes, in our regulated business, we are getting net inflows, not as strong as we would like, not as strong as it used to be, but there is growth there. Then on our unregulated funds, we are working through the restructuring. So if you ask me whether Cyton will survive, of course, I'm an entrepreneur. I can't see it any other way, but of course it has to. We have the most diversified and attractive real estate portfolio. Even though it remains illiquid, we have a well-performing serviced hotel apartment. We have the best technology in terms of money market fund, invest, withdraw anytime 24-7. And you can move from there to M-Pesa pay bill. You can move from there to till number. You can move from your money market fund to sending money to someone instantly. So when I look at all those things, these are temporary challenges and we are committed to working through them. I've not seen one indicator that I would say that this brand would not survive. And it is business. This is not life and death. If the day I feel that this cannot work, I'll be the first person to tell investors, look, we came into this with a plan. There has not been even a single shilling that is stolen. It has not worked and therefore let us not proceed. I have not seen any single indicator that would cause me to actually face investors and say this can't work. It has challenges and that's why I've told them we have to confront our challenges. There are those who've been in these funds since 2014. You've enjoyed seven years of returns and liquidity. We are now asking you that for the next one, one, two or three years, we have to work through the challenges. That is business. It's a risk and return. It's not return and return all the time. There will be risks and we have to confront those risks and address them. All we have is an illiquidity risk. Why would a brand disappear just because of an illiquidity? And so far we've demonstrated since March 2020 that we know the tools, whether it's legal, whether it is brand or marketing or whichever other tool, we know the tools to use to manage the liquidity risks. All right. Uh, I want to ask a quick question from the latest CMA report. They show that the AUM for one of the products, at least the 
the cited uh, unit trust was down 13% year over year. What would be the reason for that? Eric, that was due to the fights we were having with CMA. They are telling us to change our name. We are saying, no, we believe in the Cyton brand. We are not changing our name from Cyton Money Market Fund. And there's no reason. And secondly, we doubt you even have the powers to tell us to change names. So when you're having those fights, money will flee. So the biggest reason for that is the fights with CMA. Number two is what you'd call uh, reputational risk spilling over from CHYS to CMMF. It's the same investors. So if an investor is feeling a little bit unsafe in CHYS, they are most likely to withdraw in CMMF. The silver lining is we have been able to pay every single person who wanted to withdraw in CMMF. It's, it's, it's just a temporary challenge and the numbers are lagging. If you were to look at those numbers again in the next quarter, CMMF has, has uh, and CMMF is site on money market fund. Let me not just throw uh, acronyms loosely. The site on money market fund has now bounced back. A quick one. So where does the MMF invest? And I think there's one of your investors who's asking what has been the cause of the consistent maybe performance above other MMFs for Cyton? Like where are you invested uh, with that MMF? We invest in government bonds, we invest in bank deposits, and even bank deposits, we are able to, we think we, we are much better in risk analysis than most of the market. I'll give you an example. We had half a billion shillings in Chase Bank. When we saw indicators of danger, we withdrew that money and were able to get out of it faster than the market. And then we allocate 25% of our money into the regulated high yield fund. On the regulated side, we just think that we've been better risk managers than our competitors. Okay, there's somebody else asking about the uh, the people bought the site on OTC shares. Um, yeah, those are shareholders in Cyton, uh, the group. They're not invested in funds. Those are shareholders in the group. When we started, we sold, I think, around 10% of the company for 100 million shillings. The strategy was to grow and then list. Of course, that has now been challenged by the current environment. So we'll be having a shareholders meeting sometime probably over the next two months to update the shareholders where we are as a group company. I will ask another question that is coming through from the DMs. Um, so is Saiton open to a buyout or selling some equity to strategic investors? Edwin? Yes, we are definitely open, but most strategic investors will want you to Put your house in order before they jump in. Why wouldn't we be? Our issue is liquidity. We need uh, liquidity as fast as we can get. Okay. So at this point, I was asking if you have questions directed at Edwin. You can request for the mic and come and ask the questions. He's here with us for the next half an hour. And also you can send us uh, uh, your questions on the DM or below the pinned tweet. We are also monitoring that. So you can send all your questions in. So there's a question here from Mwambeta who's asking... While you had a bad experience in the U.S. to an extent that you freaked out about getting a mortgage, how do you feel for the short-changed quote-unquote investors in their unregulated products? Of course, Mwambeta, I do. I mean, we get very heart-wrenching stories, and that's the human side. But we don't have the capacity to bear that, and I'm just being frank. We don't have the capacity to bear that illiquidity risk because it's only when illiquidity of risk arrives that you understand what somebody was doing. There are people who actually took a loan to actually invest in CHYS. When the product was performing, of course, they would take their interest and pay off the loan. So the loan is at least, say, 
11, 12%, they are getting 16%. So they were getting a 4% carry, essentially money into their pocket. When now it's not paying interest and it's being capitalized, they are not able to perform on that loan. But we could not have known that investment strategy at the time of investing. When you invest, the form is very clear. It's asking you, do you have experience in investment of at least three years? Have you, do you have experience with real estate? Are you an investment professional? But in most cases, just like when I go to a bank and I want a loan, what I want is the loan. The papers they give me, I'll just sign there and move on. When there's an issue is when now I get to know what is in the fine print. So one better, the human part for sure is there. But the reality is that the fund does not have the cash and it is investment and sometimes there will be risk. And now we are with the risk. I see a couple of requests. Francis is here. Maybe Francis, you can ask your question first. I thank you, Eric. Am I audible enough? Yes, you are. Oh, thank you. My name is Francis Wanjiku. I'm a public policy lawyer. My interest in this space is simple. You have been very vocal about reforms that you think will make a difference in the space of uh, money markets. I want to hear some of the reforms that you think that is going to make a difference, uh, maybe long-term and short-term. Because what we have seen is a downward trend towards investing in the money markets. Secondly, uh, my question is on the recovery strategy for Cyton, because you have spoken about the, your experience over the years. You have seen the mistakes that could be blamed as the CEO. What is your recovery strategy for Cyton? And thirdly, I think this is an opinion. I think the crisis communication was hand, handled very badly. And uh, from an investor point of view, from a public point of view, does Cyton have a crisis communication person? Uh, so who will be dealing with this maybe in future? Because we want to know whether it will be handled differently because it has, it has been a problem for everyone in the market because we don't know what's happening. We don't understand the regulator is giving uh, this kind of information and Cyton is responding back. So it looks as if it's a fight rather than something that people want to get uh, a clear view and a clear picture. So for my final um, view is on public and private offers, which you have already clarified. I, I, I tend to disagree with you in terms of just because the public or your group of investors were aware that they were signing into a specific unregulated fund. Uh, that means that they are aware it removes the blame from Cyton. I think one key difference between the two, the public and the private offers, is that the private offers is to a very sophisticated group of investors. I doubt you had accomplished that, how would I term it, that principle. But uh, I think what Cyton did was to sell to a very large group of in Kenyan investors of different classes. I think maybe you had maybe 10% sophisticated and maybe 90% uh, investors who come from the normal public. And I think that's where everything went wrong because if you miss that kind of sophistication, people who have had a good experience in the money market, whenever things like this go wrong, I think everyone just goes down with it. So those are my few contributions to this space. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. And you must a bunch of questions and uh, human being, I have shortcomings and my biggest shortcomings is memory. So I'll try. Let me first start with debunking what I call is a myth, Francis. This issue of public and private, if you were to get the data, private has actually done better than public in terms of risks. And when you say public, we really do mean regulated. 
Chase Bank bond was regulated, they walked away with zero, nothing. And this was approved by CMA, at least here, bickering with people on how to get the assets back to them. Imperial Bank bond was regulated. They walked away with zero. A mana money market fund was regulated. I think at best they will get 50%. Uh, my worst investor will not get 50%. At worst, they'll get 70%. Uchumi, Mumias, KQ, all these were regulated entity. Nakumatwa was packaged by a regulated uh, entity. That was a commercial paper packaged by this entity that packages commercial paper. I can't remember the intermediary's name. So first, there's a myth that regulated is safer. We sat down and looked at the actual losses in regulated markets. I think we got somewhere to the tune of 200 billion in terms of losses. So let us put the data in front of us before we give the perception that regulated is safer. I don't think that is safe based on the data that I've seen. My email is ceo at cyton.com. If you send me an email, I'll send you the data to show you that uh, the regulated space just has challenges, if not worse than the unregulated space. Second, you've asked for reforms. There are so many. Number one is disclosure. If you go to the developed market, a money market fund has to report every three months, every quarter. This is where the money is invested. We have had this discussion with CMA severally. Why don't you demand that we all disclose where money is invested because we don't want you to be choosing who to punish and who not to punish at any particular point, depending on who you like and who you don't like. If you are telling me that I am overweight in one asset class or my allocation is inappropriate, then let us see everyone's allocation so that I don't feel that you are just picking on me. So we need to improve on disclosure so that there's transparency and some of us then don't feel like we are being picked on just because we are not aligned either, you know, politically or in any other way. Let us have full disclosure of these portfolios. The second issue is on custodians. It's unbelievable that in the year 2022, a money market fund is allowed to only have one bank. If you are in help, you'll be told, pick whichever bank through, through which you want to transact. So like for us, we've picked KCB. If you are an equity bank and you want to invest a thousand shillings, just the, the cost of transferring your 1,000 from equity to KCB could cost you 100. That's already 10% of the money you are investing. So you cannot incur 10% in transaction cost to go chase a 10% per annum return. Why don't we allow Unitrust funds or money market funds to open as many bank accounts as is important for their clients? That, that's the only place where I hear that you have to only open one bank account. Why don't we have people opening as many? custody accounts as possible. Private offers, we might disagree whether CHYS or CPN was focused on private offers, but CMA has no business trying to regulate private equity and private debt at all. The only issue is that nobody has taken it to courts and said, this is none of your business. We took it to court and it's, it's making its way uh, through the courts where we are saying it is a private offer, it is a private equity, it's a private transaction. It's really none of your business. It's a bilateral transaction. And in any case, foreigners are doing it. That's how Good Life is funded. That's how Kukito is funded. That's how Java is funded. That's how Shell or Vivo Africa is funded. So what is wrong with a Kenyan also participating in private equity? And if then you take the sum total of what we call these restrictive actions, poor disclosure, you can only open one bank account if you are a unit trust fund. We don't like private equity. 
it then translates to 99% of business funding coming from banks. That's why it is very hard to get access to credit. And when you do get it, it's expensive. We think that it's actually hurting the economy. You are giving dominance to one part of the financial services sector by having very restrictive policies on the capital market side. So those are the reform issues that we see or that I see. And we've gone further and said we are going to form an association. It's called CMRK, Capital Markets Roundtable Kenya, where we are getting like-minded individuals, people who think that they have either been excluded or uh, they don't have a voice in capital markets. We are coming together and lobbying. You can't feel helpless. You bring people together, you articulate your agenda, you reach decision makers and you put your reasoning on the table. So those are the issues that we are pushing for from a reforms perspective. Crisis communication, yes, we have our head of PR and communication, a lady called Teresi, I believe. She's logged on to this Mwango Spaces. We will take the feedback and do a better job unless, TK, you want to respond to that. Now, on the, what I would call probably the most piercing comment, Francis, you've made is on public and private, where you are saying it was indeed public. I can see where you are coming from, but remember, we, we spend a lot of time on these things. The issue of public or private offers has not been litigated in this country, but now it's being litigated. But we've looked at jurisprudence in this area, and one of the judges said, an offer even to one person is public if you offered it in a public space. That means if, for example, I get a billboard and go advertise CHYS and only one person invests, that's a public offer because I sold it in a public space. On the other side, an offer even to a million people is private as long as you approach them privately. You will, you will never see and you have never seen CHYS, CPN sold anywhere in social media, on any billboard or any radio or any public platform. We have to come to you. And the, the way we reach these people is that we hired people who are RMs in banks that were targeting high net worth individuals. We hired a lot of people from the former Chase. So these were guys who knew the high net worth individuals. They approached them individually. So I think there's a difference in opinion here as to whether it was the public or not, because we spend a lot of time on structuring. We do get into a lot of litigation situation and we track our success rate. Our success rate in litigation is almost like 98%. Because our documentation is right, we thought through the situations and therefore there, I think I beg to disagree with you, whether public or private is determined by law and we are properly within the law. We did not advertise to the public. We went and approached people individually. People got to know about it through referrals. I'm not being defensive. You can talk to them. Nobody got to know about any of these offers through the public spaces. The fact that there are 4,000 individuals, even if there were 1 million, does not make it a public offer, at least in law, the way we understand it. And that's why we subject the, the issue to judicial interpretation. Francis, I hope you are answered. Can't see you. By our fr a friend of the show here, Joe is here. Uh, maybe you have a question, Joe. Hi, Eric. Uh, hi, Edwin. Uh, thanks again for the time. I have a quick question around liquidity. So I used to work with Fidelity Investments on the money market side, and we had a rule, I mean, in the US, the rule called 2A7 that governs what mutual funds can buy. So for you guys using money market funds to invest in real estate, which is very liquid, how are you able to 
manage liquidity for your customers. So in case people want their money back, having something as liquid as real estate seems very risky to me, but I'm assuming you have something in place to address that. I think maybe I'm not getting it right. CHYS, CPM that invest in real estate, those are not, those are not money market funds. Those, those are real estate funds. And looking back, we should have called them a site on real estate fund. But those are not money market funds. When I talk about money market funds, it's the regulated money market fund. And that does not invest, at least not directly in real estate. It invests 25% in a collective investment scheme that has exposure to real estate, but uh, 75% in all liquid products. But CHYS, CPN, where there's illiquidity, those are not money market funds. Okay. Yeah, that, that answers the question because based on the conversation, it sounded like they're, they're both money market funds from the names. No, no, no. The, the private funds are not money market funds at okay. all. And in any case, how can a money market fund offer you 16 to 18%? And given that uh, you've said you worked for Fidelity, obviously, then you are sophisticated. The real name for those funds, those are loan market funds. They are lending to these real estate projects. And now we turned around and told them the same way SBM is going, going to give us a moratorium on their lending to real estate, we want a moratorium from you. And that's when help broke loose. A loan fund should surely should expect that there are moments when it has to give a moratorium to the borrower. Could we have done a better job communicating the actual structure, the actual exposure? Absolutely. Right. So this is just a, a transparency and communication issue. Makes sense. I think the question that has come through also is if you were to address your investors today, like give a state of site and address to especially those ones who are in those two affected funds, perhaps you can speak to them and, and let them know what exactly you would want them to know as of this moment. That's a good point, Eric. I think it's first, we all have to be constructive. You've seen investors going out and shouting fraud. It's like shouting fire in a movie theater. Fraud has to be particularized. It moved from this account to that account and therefore it's fraud. So the first thing is let's be constructive. Let's deal with data. Money is emotive and I understand why people would be all over social media filing liquidation petition, but that will not help. Let us face the reality. Secondly, if the assets are there, then the question is what is the path to money? Because what people want is money monetization. You cannot crash real estate into liquidity overnight. Nobody will. Not DCI, not DPP, not CMA. At the end of the day, the investment manager and the investors have to sit down and agree how to restructure. There's nothing unique about our real estate funds. If you compare with other real estate funds in the world, we have investors in CHYS who also invested in another real estate funds outside Kenya. And the experience is the same. The only thing here, Eric, and unless somebody, and I would challenge anybody on this Twitter spaces conversation, if you know of any other locally real estate fund, other than I think it's the Fahari, which it itself has lost almost 70% since it went uh, public. Everybody, when they want to fund real estate, they go to a bank or they dip on their own personal resources. We were the first one to organize the largest real estate uh, loan fund. And for that, we are taking the beating. And yes, somebody has to do it for the market. It's just that we've done something that the market has not done. Would we want to be in an illiquid situation? No, we don't want it. Are there people that have really, really desperate 
and heart-wrenching situations, yes, and we are trying to do everything that we can. There has been no fraud unless anybody can particularize it. I have not met a single CHYS investor who says, I thought I was in a regulated product. They pretty much knew uh, what they were invested in. It was a private investment in real estate. What we could have communicated better is the illiquidity risk. When now it has arrived, the best thing to do is to come together and say, what is the way out? Going onto social media uh, and trashing a fund that you are in is almost like drilling a hole in a boat that you are seated in. We are all in the same boat. We have to be constructive and get out of it. And I'm personally very committed to working through it. Patrick, here with a question. Hi, Eric. Hi, Edwin. Uh, I have two questions. So one, post-COVID, how is the uptake for real estate like? The second question is, uh, given your previous experience in the U.S. markets, would you allocate some capital, maybe trading in the U.S. markets? Thank you. So, Patrick, real estate remains challenged broadly. But if you have differentiated real estate, there is still a market. Deals are still happening. The challenge we have as Cyton is that paint with a broad brush that there is a problem. So if then I want to buy a villa at, let's say, Karen, I might like stand out, but do I like it enough to actually spend time trying to figure out what's in administration, what's not in administration, what risk do I have? So you'll see people shying away. But on the other side, a lot of people of the 4,000 investors in these funds there's quite a number who have just decided that I will take the real estate. So the uptake of real estate by people who are really exposed to it is actually pretty strong. Some of the properties we have, there's really absolutely no reason to even look for an outside buyer because the insiders are saying, I want to actually hold this. So real estate generally is soft, but if you have outstanding property and in very strong markets, whether it's strong demographics, places like current or comprehensive lifestyle, they still uptake in real estate. Will real estate come back? Absolutely. The demographics are still very compelling in terms of population growth, urbanization. It's just a question of who will make it past this current challenging situation. And I think almost every single brand, I don't want to mention them, but if you look at some of the real estate brands that were there before COVID, quite a number have disappeared. Those who are still around are challenged. Some of us are challenged very loudly in public. Some of them are challenged very quietly, but real estate is challenging in this current environment. All right. A couple of questions are coming. So one is asking, what's your scheme in the game in sight? What do you stand to lose if the institution itself does not recover in the way that you wanted? And then secondly, what are you using as funds to fund the completion of the projects and maybe uh, your day-to-day capital, where, where are you sourcing it from? And if the liquidity challenges persist, what would be your action points? What would you do in that case? So let me answer the first question. Of course, the biggest risk for me as an individual is the reputational risk. I'm very passionate about capital markets. If you look at uh, the history of the world, some of the best developed com- countries, there are two things. It's free people and free markets, democracy and free markets. Look at where our people, Kenyans migrate to. Uh, They migrate to places that have very strong democratic institutions and very open and free markets. So uh, when we call ourselves third world, 
really the two things that we lack is free markets and free people, the rule of law. So my contribution is on the free markets part of it. Now, if I'm not able to then restructure Cyton high yield solution as CPN, I don't think I would have the credibility to continue participating in deepening and widening of capital markets. So the biggest risk for me is reputational. There's also financial. I mean, almost everything I have is in Cyton. We put our personal monies as the founders and almost everything into Cyton. But that's not such a big deal because you can always create. This is investment, real estate is intellectual capital. I mean, we have raised 20 billion shillings as a firm started by four people and grew to 200 people. We didn't have anything other than the strength of our ideas and the execution behind those ideas. So the money you can always rebuild if you are alive and if you have the intellectual capital. So the biggest risk for me is really the reputational risk because reputational risk, people will not forgive you. They will not do business with you again. They will not listen. And quite frankly, I think of all our 4,000 investors, we are confident we can win back probably 2,500 of them are very open to coming back if you can show them a path to money. And if you can show them how you will come out of the illiquidity. And remember, we have the largest part of the farm. The farm has 35,000 clients. The 30,000 in the regulated products do not have issues. And those are the people who still continue to give us confidence in the market. If you find two investors, one in money market and the other one in the real estate fund talking about the brand, they'll be talking two different stories. The guy in the money market fund does not see an issue at all. So we just have to address the 4,000 in the real estate funds. Another quick question about Alma and how it's doing and maybe how many units you sold there. Alma, I think the sales are currently probably around 65%. Don't hold me to that number, but it's around there. Once all these issues hit, remember Alma is financed by SBM in terms of trying to finish the project. SBM is a foreign bank. You can think about the CEO or the head of credit seated in Mauritius reading all these issues. So they took a step back and said they wanted to a consultant to review all this negative publicity that they were seeing. That consultant, I think it's BDO, which is big in Mauritius, has come back and I think the report has been positive. So we are working with the bank to upscale the lending so that we can complete the project. I'm confident that we shall complete the project. That's very specific about the project. Since the what happened to the ridge northern bypass and Taraji? Once we ran into the liquidity challenges, we now dialed back and we now have to do one big project at a time. So you will not see us go back to the ridge or Taraji until such time we've closed out on the Alma. We expect to close out on the Alma by July this year, and then we shall move to the ridge, which is the next compelling project. So we'll be working through the projects one project at a time. And Edwin, and Eric has asked me to take over. So uh, thank you for answering my earlier question. To ask you one question, what's your opinion on the new players in the market? Like, like what are they doing? I think Econ is doing a fantastic job. They picked a very unique area, purpose-built student housing. And if you think about it, nobody had really built a brand that uh, was focused on that area and they've come out and done exactly that. I think it's an, it's an excellent move on their side. They've been fortunate to find private equity financiers. I have nothing but admiration for what they are doing. There's someone on the DM asking, as a chama, they are ready to invest in Cyton. 
but they don't know where to start because of the reputation. So if someone is out there listening to you right now, what do you tell them? Where, where do they start in terms of uh, due diligence when they're investing their Chama's funds? I think it's to set up a meeting with one of our relationship managers or financial advisors. If you are in Nairobi, is to just walk to the Chancery sixth floor and we can have a meeting and we walk you through the products. And we are not for everyone. One of the things that we've learned through this is to tell people, do not give me more than 25% of your money because you get a pensioner who says I invested everything. I cannot be in touch with every investor, but every time I meet an investor, I tell them one key tenet of investment is diversification. You cannot put all your money in one asset class. Something can go wrong. Even the money market funds, the guy who said uh, he works for Fidelity, even U.S., money market funds during the global financial crisis had to take a haircut. So if you're in a chama, it is to reach out. We have a meeting. We go through our products. You have the right time horizon and we give you the product that works. Email sales at siteon.com. We will reach out. Sorry, I got kicked out there. The internet issues. Anyone who had a question in the speaker's panel? Have you asked no. a question? No, not yet. Hi, Eric. Uh, hi, Edwin. I have a couple of questions. The first one, you mentioned that you are confident that you can get back some of your investors as long as you can show them the path to money and the path to liquidity. So what is the path to money and the path to liquidity? That's the first one. The second question is earlier in the discussion, you mentioned that you do have a wide number of projects that act as security for your investors. And you mentioned the Ridge, you mentioned Taraji Heights, you mentioned Riveran. However, as you said, you've changed your strategy and focus from taking multiple projects to one project at a, at a time. Right now you're focusing on Alma and then you move to the Ridge, then so forth and so forth. So my question is, at the moment, what are the actual projects that can be used as security? Because I do not believe that you can count the Ridge as it's incomplete. You cannot count Taraji. I don't have much knowledge about Riveran. So which are the projects that you can actually say if you invest and the worst comes to the worst? And you did mention that worst case scenario investors can get 70% as opposed to, you mentioned a mana capital who maybe will get uh, 50%. So which are these assets that would be used for liquidity? That's my second question. Uh, final question is, based on the social media persona, do you think that you might come off as being a little bit too combative? Because there's a history of fighting, you had an issue with the former employers, an issue with the regulator. And just to give an example of Akon, who you've given a shout out, who you worked together with earlier on. And for them, they seem to be working very well with the regulator, having something like VUCA being in the CMS sandbox. So do you think that's something that also kind of works against you or is being perceived as being too combative? Good questions. Let me start with path to money. Unfortunately, we are at a point where the investment manager cannot make the call by themselves. We have to then work with the administrator. Remember, they have to have a view on these assets and they are working on it. But if you are to ask me, path to money is essentially those who can convert, do the top up to complete the real estate, do so. Those who cannot convert, then give time for us to sell these assets. If you look at all these assets as a portfolio, Completion is self-financing. We would have to give up some assets. I mean, remember, Saiton has the largest uh, contiguous piece of land with access to two roads in Kilimani, the four acres 
next to Kavina at the corner of Agwings, and I think I forget the name of the other road. We could liquidate that and use it to part pay investors, part complete the project. So the portfolio is self-financing to completion. It would take almost uh, five years, but that the administrator now has to take a view. Once we went to court and administrate, administrator is appointed, they have to take a view. But if you had to ask me, the path to money is completing one big project at a, at a time. Those who can top up and take assets, take. Those who cannot wait for sale of assets, part of the money will go to pay them. Part of the money will go to complete the projects. The projects are there, 10 observable projects. We can give you the list and you can take a look at each of them. When you ask which one can you use at security, I see it a little differently. You can use all of them. Even the ridge, there are people who are saying, I'm converting to this block H, which is still at foundation, and I'm taking an apartment on the 10th floor, and I'm willing to wait for five years. It is different risk appetites for different uh, investors. All the projects have value in them, and all of them serve as security. However, if you want your apartment over the next one year, then you go to, you go to the Alma, or you go to Saisuits. If you want a piece of land, you can go to Riveran or you can go to Applewood. If you want a long-term horizon, then you go to Taraji. There's nothing wrong with somebody saying, I am converting to Taraji and whatever cash I have to top up, I want you to give me five years because that's how long it will take to get to that project. So remember, each investor has different risk appetite. The one that is hard for me to respond to is this one of pers uh, personality. I think there are three ways to do business in this country. Either you are connected. That means if there's an issue, you can make a call and resolve your issue. Or I hate to say it, you're an entrepreneur or you're corrupt. Uh, you have ways to pay your way. Or you have to use the courts. I don't see any other issue. Now, unfortunately, when I look at each business has to reflect the character of the founders, we are not connected people. We can't make calls and have our issues resolved. We are not tenderpreneurs. We do business by the book. And when you do business by the book, then I think in this country, you'll have no option but to engage in some combat every once in a while. You'll have to file some suits to be able to get orders and... We don't file suits frivolously. We actually debate these things with our lawyers. We ask ourselves, are we on the right side of history? Are we on the right side of the law? Are we on the right side of the statutes? And if we are, we first start by engaging the other. And when you talk about this being combative, it seems like mainly CMA. We have been in countless meetings with CMA. We have begged, but at point comes where you say, to hell with these discussions. We understand the law and we are going to invoke the law. So I'm not sure. Good answer. We are not vexatious litigators who just say, let's go to court just because court is open. We are not people who go to court as the first resort. We go to court to defend ourselves once we've gotten a directive that in our view makes no sense. So it comes across as uh, combative, but in most cases we are left with no choice. When somebody tells you, you must change the name of your business. And I don't know if we've ever talked about the origin of Cyton. When we started this business, we said we are about innovation and creation. We don't want to go with any name that already exists anywhere in the world. So we sat around a table for almost two days, putting letters together. And once we found a name, we would Google it. If it exists, we strike it out. Cyton, we reached 
uh, that name. And when we Googled it, it didn't exist. We wanted to innovate. Then somebody sends you a letter and says, change your name overnight. We cannot accept such a thing because we don't see what is wrong with the name. We see the challenges and we are committed to correcting them. So it is only in such cases that we go to court and get injunctive orders. And that comes across as combative. I don't know. It's a, everybody has a challenge. I have to work on my own challenges. How do we work to be seen as more collaborative, as combative? Having said that, there's a place where to stay in the room, you have to be combative. Otherwise, you're going to be escorted out of the room. All right, we are close to winding up. And Kelvin and uh, Hassan, you have to keep your questions very short. And then we will, they'll be the last kind of questions that we take. Kelvin first. Kelvin? Hello, all of you. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the participation that I take apart. I just wanted to ask the program mover and this project that you're talking about. And for example, a person like me, I hail from Northern Kenya. And how can we reach this program and market development that you are talking about? And for example, earlier you have, you have said that uh, those who are in Nairobi, they can reach you in a certain place that, that you have mentioned. And somebody like me, I'm in Garza County, Garza Town. So how can I meet the team, you know, and more about uh, this program and this project? Thank you very much. All right. In addition to that, maybe you can also answer a question here that has come through about your, your view on maybe a former employer of yours also called Centum. I think you've been at Centum before. So maybe what's your thoughts on that? You've given a shout out to Satan or something. Okay. So responding to the question from my brother from Garissa, I didn't get his name, but so Asana, unfortunately, we've not been able to reach not just Garissa, but in terms of risk management, we know Nairobi and quite frankly, all our investments are within 60 kilometers of CBD, just because when we started our business, it was using short-term funding. So we could not afford to take a lot of risk beyond where there is a good concentration of Kenyan wealth. Having said that, it's a digital world. More than happy to reach out to you. You can reach out to me at ceo at siton.com and then we see what we can do in terms of reaching out. But investment is something that is so key to this country. It should go to pretty much all regions. And that's part of what we are trying to achieve through Capital Markets Roundtable for Kenya. Uh, Hassan, I hope you got the email, ceo at siton.com, then we pick the conversation. Eric, the issue of what do I think about Centum? I think it's a pretty good shop. I was there for three months. Moria is a former schoolmate. When I was looking to come back, he gave me a place to kind of take uh, a view of the capital markets in Kenya at the end of my probation. I said, no, thank you. This is your show. There is no room for two of us. And um, off I went to the US. That's when I got the call from Wairegi to come join Baraka. And it's from Baraka that then I got the Britam opportunity. I think it's a great shop. I'm sure they're having the same challenges we are having in real estate. They've just been better at managing them than we are. I don't know what more I could say about the center. That should be the end of the open questions. Now we wind up with two questions. So one is uh, maybe from your career. Imudil is asking about the most thrilling books, especially in finance that you've read, two or three books. And there's another question that says, now if you were to chart the path forward for Saiton, what would be your best case, uh, worst case, and uh, maybe 
uh, middle case uh, scenario going forward? Those are the, the two questions, and then you uh, will ask you to give uh, your closing thoughts. Okay. Books. It's interesting. It, it ties to the issue of being combative. There's this. There's this book by the former CEO of Disney. I think it's called Robert Iger. The name escaped. If somebody can help me. I'll check it up because it's a book I've read recently. I'll, I'll send it out. The one written by the ruler of Dubai, Al Maktoum. I think it's called Flashes of Thought. I, I recommend it to everyone in terms of the way he talks about his ideas. The one for Disney is called The Ride of a Lifetime. I've just remembered the name. The Ride of a Lifetime. But my most favorite book, I think, is a book called What It Takes. And it talks about a guy who has studied the most successful farms in the world. And he came out with, I think, seven things, what it takes to build a great brand. That, to me, is the most favorite book. Uh, when we started Cyton, we made it mandatory for everybody to read. As we grew, we kind of lost the ability to enforce it because we couldn't now sit in one room as a group and read. But when we were around 10, 12 people, we would sit in the boardroom and read it chapter by chapter and ask ourselves, what are the lessons here? So if there's one book I would recommend to anyone who's trying to build a brand and trying to build a farm, it is the book called What It Takes. Is that the book by No, I think it's called Richard L. Ellis. Oh, okay. The Scotsman one came later, but this one, it's a blue cover uh, called What It Takes. It's not the Schwarzman one. Uh, this one is Richard Ellis. All right. And maybe now you can tell us about the future then of Saiton. Interesting question, Eric. From where I sit, I can't be totally objective. I'm subjective in it, but the short-term future will be challenging. We are working through challenges, but the long-term future is brilliant. I think we have very talented people. I'm just the voice of the of the brand. We have 150 very talented individuals. Anybody who's gone through the selection process to get into Cyton is a rigorous process. We have best-of-class technology. Our real estate still stands out. I always challenge people, go to Karen, look at the Kamara Ridge and tell me if there's a better aspirational, exclusive, gated community. I think Kamara Ridge stands out. Alma still remains the most comprehensive lifestyle development in Nairobi or in Kenya, I would challenge anybody to give me a better organized, comprehensive lifestyle. Size suits, even in challenging environments, has been able to achieve 50 to 60% occupancy. Yes, those are the good stories. The bad stories that we have 4,000 disgruntled investors who want to see liquidity in a time when there is no liquidity. We are working through it uh, one at a time. It will take us probably another uh, two to three years to earn their trust back. But once we earn their trust back, we will have proven to them that it was a short-term challenge. We've worked through it and we'll be back to a path of growth. That's what I see as the future of Cyton. And at any moment when that vision is not realistic, I'll be the first one to square out with investors and say this is not possible. But at this particular point, I have not seen any indicator. If anything, the mere fact um, that our money market funds, our regulated funds are still performing. I've had so many people tell me that you won't be able to sustain these funds, but the team has worked together and those funds are growing. So as long as your net inflows on the regulated funds are positive, I think there's a, not just a chance, but there's a big room to turn the funds around. That Cyton has almost like a very interesting dynamics. Those who really hate the brand really hate it, but those who love the brand really love it. And they are in multiple products and they believe in the brand. So 
I just think the short term is challenge, but the future is bright. Thank you. Parting shot, apart from that. I think really the, the parting shot is thanks to you, Eric, and Wonder Spaces and everyone here. I think we have a shouting culture as a country where we don't sit and look at parts. This has been better than I thought. I was expecting angry clients and the typical insults we see on social media. This has been constructive. The real parting shot would be we really need to look at the things we have as a country. I mean, we have the best destination in terms of safari, the best place, some of the best beach and sand that people pay to, to come to a name that is recognized. Obama put us on the global stage, entrepreneurial culture, very literate and in terms of numbers and reading, our key issues tend to be corruption, ethnicity, and mediocrity. With things like this that you guys are putting together, where people can have a discussion around ideas, I think we can move the country forward. So thanks for uh, putting this together and thanks everyone for dialing in. And as I said, I'm accessible at CEO at Cyton.com to continue the conversation. Thank you. Great. Thank you for joining us today. Very appreciative that you took your time. Uh, and this has been in the works for around six months. So it's great that to finally have you here. I would say thank you for everyone who came, those who came to ask questions or comments below the pinned tweet. We have some of the questions we're not able to ask them out here, but those who have not been able to, right, mostly because of our limited time, but we forwarded them all to the PR and communications person at Cyton, so they'll be able to reach out to the rest of the speakers here. You can just say goodbye and then we'll finish the spaces. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Edwin. It has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, we are happy as uh, part of the team at Mongo, we are happy to work with you on the policy areas. So, uh, as I don't, don't feel alone uh, in this fight. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. I'll see you next week. All of you.